All right, today we're looking at Hebrews chapter 13. So everybody turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And I'm preaching the second to last sermon in the Hebrew series today. Second to last. Reuben's going to come and wrap it up next week. And so uh, I don't know if he had a lack in faith of me being able to do that or not, but I think uh, he had some words to speak to you as well out of chapter 13. And so uh, we're coming to an end. It's been a great series for, for myself in the study that I've had to do for it. And for Reuben, we were just talking this week. And we've loved the study just for ourselves and getting into the depth of the Word of God in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews has taken us through a lot of, a lot of depth and a lot of meaning. And we tried our best not to avoid any of those hard topics as we studied the Scripture. And that's led to uh, a deeper understanding for us and I hope a deeper understanding for each of you as well. Now, don't forget we have the uh, study pages up here for the entire series. And there's extra studies all the way through. I think there's 22 sermons on the series. And the entire series of Hebrews, we're going to try and have packaged together just in time for Christmas. And so husbands, if you want uh, a loving package to give to your wife at Christmas time, that's it. Same for you wives. But you may know of others that uh, might enjoy that series. And so we're going to try and package that together into a five DVD set. And so I just wanted to make you aware of that as well because... Uh, since I'm managing that ministry now, I feel obligated to make a sales pitch. And so, <laughs> all right, Hebrews chapter 13. Now, the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 13, it's almost as though he kind of stops, stops and has a moment here, and he kind of gives us a list of just random, random thoughts about Chris, Christian behavior here. And it's almost as though he kind of had lost his train of thought and entered into this, and then he goes back into kind of the, the, uh, the main emphasis of the book of Hebrews. But for this kind of passage here in the first few verses, he just kind of goes on a random, random pace here and mentions a few random things. And so I'm going to just kind of address it randomly as well. Let's look here at verse 1 of chapter 13. He says, Keep on loving each other as brothers. And of course, we know as Christians that we should love one another. Throughout Scripture in the New Testament, uh, the writers talk about this idea of one another. We should bear with one another, love one another, help one another, and, and be with one another as Christians. One another's are mentioned several times throughout the text. And of course, Jesus said of his disciples, he said, the world will know you are my disciples if you, if you love one another. And so that's a powerful and important part of, of being a Christian. And then he comes up with this statement, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, it seems like an odd text to place right here in this passage. And he dealt with angels way back. I dealt with it way back in a sermon on angels back in Hebrews chapter 1. And I dealt with this particular verse just a little bit. But evidently, this was an important part of people in the Old Testament and in, the, in that first century, entertaining strangers, because you never know if you're entertaining an angel of God. Abraham encountered three fellows in the Old Testament, and he was talking to them, and then suddenly realized they're angels of God. You get to the book of Judges, you see Gideon. Gideon came across a man sitting under a tree and realized that's an angel of God. And then you have Manoah in the book of Judges, who encountered, his wife encountered some men of God, and, and uh, he didn't really believe her, and, and then he encountered them as well, and realized these, are, these must be the men of God, angels. And so um, angels, and, and angels appear to be men at, at certain times. In fact, in my own life, I have an experience that I wonder sometimes, was it an angel of God? Um, maybe I was just set up, I don't know. But it happened on a Bible college campus, so I could have been set up. But uh, 
I'll just tell you quickly. This is just a random thought of mine. Uh, as, I, as I was heading out to lunch one day, it was a cold Nebraska day, and our Bible college was a small Bible college. It just had three, kind of three campus buildings and a sidewalk in between them all. And it was a real cold day, and as I walked, I remember the day clearly. There was no one else outside. It was just me walking real fast across the sidewalk over to the lunchroom to get some, get some food. And as I walked down the path, this guy came out from the edge of the building and turned and began to walk up the sidewalk. And he was a homeless guy. Or I assume he was homeless because he looked like what I would picture a homeless guy to be. Just scraggly hair, scraggly beard, you know, ripped up, torn, dirty clothes on, layers of different clothes, his shoes were flopping. And so there's this homeless guy. And I'd have to say, in this small town in Nebraska, that was the first and only time I ever saw a homeless guy. There just, there just wasn't a large homeless population in that small town. In fact, I don't know anyone that was homeless in that small town. And so it was a very unusual sight. But here's, here's me. I'm, I'm fast-tracking it out to get some food over in the other building. And I'm walking real fast, and I see him. And as we pass, the only thought that comes to mind is, is to say hello. <laughs> so I said hello to him and walked by him and went to the cafeteria. And as I entered into the building, I was heading over to get some food. And I tell you, uh, God just struck me with conviction like you wouldn't believe. And I ran outside and said, you idiot, what are you doing? And I ran outside to find this guy and thought, well, I should have bought him lunch, you know. I should have at least seen if he was hungry. And I ran out and I couldn't find him. And I ran down the sidewalk, couldn't find him. And so all day long, I, I asked people if they saw this guy. And it appears as though I was the only guy that saw this guy on campus. And so it's always stuck to me from then on. I wondered if it was a test from God. You know, I don't know. I'm not going to say it was, but I'm not going to say it wasn't. And I can tell you, for one thing, it's made me a lot more aware of people's needs when I pass them on the street. And so I don't know. That's, my, that's kind of my experience with, with strangers maybe being an angel of God. Now, that's not doctrine. I wouldn't say that that's exactly an angel. I don't know. But, uh, but it stuck with me. All right. Back to the scriptures here. Verse 3. He says, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you, were, you yourselves were suffering. And so we are to empathize with those who are in prison, and empathize with those who are suffering, and care for those people. And, and this prison ministry idea happened even before the church began, because Jesus emphasized it, and Jesus and Matthew said that his followers would take care of those who are in prison. And so prison ministry is an important part of, of being a disciple of Christ. And that's something we don't often talk about. But the writer here puts that in. He says in verse 4, he says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And so another standard that God has set in place for those who, who follow Christ, for those who claim that Jesus is their Lord, he set standards in place. This is one of them. Honor the marriage bed. Honor the marriage relationship because God has ordained it and set it up. And sexual immorality and the like was a prevalent part of that first century culture with the pagan worship and pagan temples. And so this was another important aspect. Verse 5, he says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Another aspect. Don't find your contentment in money. Be free from the love of money. And you know, that's really difficult in our culture today because our money, our society revolves around money. 
We all need money. We all want money. We desire more money. No matter what economic level you're at, you desire to have more money. And so it's really difficult for us, and this passage here really speaks to us. Be careful that you don't have a love for money. Find our contentment in other things. Find our contentment particularly in Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul said, I am content in any and all circumstances. Because his contentment came from Jesus Christ, not the things of this world, not money or anything else. His contentment came from Jesus. And then verse 7, the writer says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Another aspect, we should, we should as leaders, the leaders in the church should be respectable men and women, people that we can respect, people who are living by faith and living out their faith. And we as Christians should find leaders that we can have in our lives whom we can respect, whom we can look to, who, whom we look to to model our faith after. People who are living, living out their faith day to day. And it's a sad statement in our culture when Christian leaders fail because they are looked up to by other Christians as men and women who live by faith. And so there's a pressure amongst the leaders of this church even to be men and women living by faith, to hold a, a high standard for themselves and a high standard for the people in the church. And so we should, we should have leaders that we can honor and respect and then we should respect them. And then he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I kind of read in that, in that sentence there the fact that all of these statutes, all these principles that he's given us to live by in our Christian faith, they're the same yesterday, today, and forever. They're the standards set out by God. Therefore, we should live by them because Jesus does not change. He did not change from, from who he was yesterday, today, and forever. And we should not either. We should carry out these values as we go along in life. And then verse 9, he says, do, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Now this is another fascinating point of that first century church because they were so concerned that false teachers would come into the church and lead them astray. You can read that in several of the letters of the New Covenant. They were concerned for false teachers coming in and taking a bit of truth and twisting it around and leading people astray by a false teaching, a strange teaching. And we have to be aware of that today. Because we have the Word of God and we have to understand this and know it and believe it and institute it into our lives because we need to know this in order to know if there's a strange and false teaching coming our way. And we are inundated with false teaching all the time. And in fact, I'm careful what I watch and what I listen to from, from other teachings because I analyze and I think deeply about it because I don't want to be led astray. I don't want to get on a, a track that I shouldn't be on with the, with the teaching. And last year I read through the history of the early church, the first and second century history with Eusebius. And it was interesting to me that they kept a track of those trusted teachers. They wrote down lists of men and women they could trust throughout those centuries because they did not want false teachings to come in. And so they had a trusted list of men and women for the first 200, maybe 300 years that, that they knew they could trust until the scriptures were compiled in the, in the third century. And so it was an important aspect to the life of the, of the Christians of that time. And then the writer of Hebrews then comes back. It's almost like now he's getting back to the context of Hebrews. So he had those random thoughts, and now he's coming back to emphasize again 
this relationship between the new covenant and the old covenant. And that's the relationship we talked about the whole time throughout the book of Hebrews. That, that relationship with Jesus being the better way. That the covenant that Jesus ushered in is a better covenant. He is a better sacrifice. And so you have this transition taking place. And then you get to the second part of verse 9. And he says this. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. And so he enters into this context then. The old covenant system built around ceremony, built around the ceremonial foods. And of course we know that food that goes into the stomach is good for our bodies. But the food that strengthens our hearts is the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. That's the context that he's bringing out here. And so the new covenant is based on grace, based on Jesus Christ. The old covenant was based on, on ceremony and sacrificial systems and ceremonial foods. And so even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, he said, food does not bring us near to God. And this was a debate that went on throughout the letters. The book of Galatians is, is that debate over whether or not the early Christians needed to go back and, and follow the old covenant food laws. And that's the debate. And the Apostle Paul confronts Peter in the book of Acts and says, no, that is not the case. New believers in Christ do not have to follow those food laws because we find our strength in Jesus Christ alone. And so that's the context of this passage. And then you get to this interesting, intriguing, but yet a little bit confusing verse in verse 10. And I'd like to say that verse 10 may be one of the most powerful verses in the book of Hebrews because he says this, We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And when he says we, he's putting it in the context of, of those early Christians, those early Jewish Christians. We as Christians have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And so you have to then begin to understand this passage in its historical context. So the pagan worshipers, when they went into their pagan temples, and the pagan temples were spread throughout the land at that time, they would go in and they would sacrifice an animal. They would pour the blood on their pagan altars. And then the person who brought the sacrifice would get together all of his friends and family or whoever he wanted, and they'd come in and they'd have a great feast on that sacrifice, and they would eat the sacrifice. Same thing happened in Judaism. Not exactly the same thing, but the priests and the Levite tribe, they were, they were allowed to eat of some of the sacrifices, whether they're grain offerings or animal sacrifices, uh, God set that up in the book of Leviticus and said that Aaron and his sons and the priests, they were allowed to eat uh, of the sacrifices. And so when they sacrificed an animal, they could eat it. And, and that was the context of this, of this passage of Scripture. But there was only one day out of the year in which the priests were not allowed to eat of the sacrifice. And that was that day of atonement that Reuben brought out in Hebrews 9 and, and 10. And that day of atonement is such an important part of the context of the book of Hebrews. And so on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish priests were not allowed to eat of the sacrifice. They would sacrifice the bull and the goat and pour the blood on the altar, but then they would take the carcass of those animals outside the city and they would burn those animals. And so they weren't allowed to eat, uh, eat those offerings. And so you see then the Day of Atonement is kind of set aside as a separate, as a separate and significant uh, event in the life 
of the sacrificial system of the Jews. And so the bull was sacrificed to atone for the sins of Aaron. And the goat, remember this, was sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. And so that's, that's the context in which this is set up. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, but the priests did not have permission to eat of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Now, the altar of the Day of Atonement then is what? It's a foreshadowing of what was to come with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was sacrificed on that great Day of Atonement when He brought atonement for all, all people. And so that's, that's where the writer of Hebrews is going here. And so he says, So those who ministered at the, at the altar of the Old Covenant, they cannot partake of the sacrifice at the altar of the New Covenant. That's the context of that verse. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The only way those who ministered at the altar in the Old Covenant could partake of the altar of the New Covenant is if they accepted the sacrifice of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. So that's the picture he built there. But for us as Christians, do we have an altar? What is the altar for Christians? Have you ever thought about that? I read an interesting fact this week as I was studying for this passage of Scripture. And the interesting thing was the pagan worshipers and the Christian, uh, and the, the pagan worshipers and the Jewish worshipers, they, they labeled Christians as atheists. Isn't that interesting? They labeled Christians as atheists. Because, of course, the pagans, they had a temple, they had an altar, and they sacrificed animals. The Jews had a temple. The Jews had a temple. They sacrificed the uh, animals there at the altar. But Christians, when the pagans and the Jews looked around, they didn't see the Christians at a temple for worship. They didn't see the Christians having a physical altar in which to offer up animal sacrifices. And so they began to call them as the later, later half of the first century went by and into the second century. They began to label Christians as atheists because they said they worshipped really no God at all because they didn't see the altar and they didn't see the temple there. That was an interesting fact for me. But of course for Christians then, Christians knew that they had a temple of God. And they understood that that temple is what? The temple is our body where God says He will come and dwell in us through the power of His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. And the altar then is the altar is the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that day of atonement. That's our altar. And that's the altar in which those old covenant ministers could not minister to unless they accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, Arrhenius, one of the church fathers in the, about the second century, he said this about people. He said, some people said, you Christians have no real religion, for you have no sacrifices. And so the actual physical event of sacrificing an animal was the sign of a religion in those first and second centuries. But of course, for Christians, Christians recognize that we do have an altar. And the sacrifice that we have is greater than any sacrifice that was offered in that old covenant system. And so the author now proceeds to draw together and paint this great picture of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Look at verses 11 through 14 here. 
It says the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore, for, for here we do not have an, an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Now that's a powerful passage there. There's three thoughts there that kind of that parallel each other. The first is the fact that the animals, uh, when they sacrificed them on that Day of Atonement, their bodies were taken outside the camp or outside the city gates, and they were burned. And then the author says, Jesus was taken outside the city gates when he was sacrificed. Therefore, we must also go out the city gates to find Jesus. Isn't that powerful? When you begin to think about what he set up here and what he's drawing together for us in our relationship to Jesus Christ, I believe there's tremendous significance in these three verses here. And so let's look at that first section, that first verse there, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. Verse 11, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Now I talked a little bit about that back in Leviticus. In fact, I'll read you a quote from Leviticus Leviticus 16, verse 27. It says this, The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, their flesh, and offal are to be burned up. And so that's where this, this context was set into, in the place. Now remember, to the, to the author of Hebrews, he was writing to a very specific crowd of people. And that is the Jewish people. And so when they heard things as, such as they took the animals outside the city gates, when they heard we have to go out the gate, that would have impacted them very strongly. It would have impacted them much more than it impacted us when we first read it. And you know, in this Hebrew series, we brought together a lot of historical context. We've talked a lot about that old covenant system and a lot about that Jewish system of religion. And this is simply a continuation of, of that historical content. And so when you get to this, this day of atonement, this animal sacrifice, that once a year, uh, very significant and special day for the Jewish people, it was the most holy of all days. It was the most honored sacrifice that took place throughout the year. And then for God then, in God's, in God's great plan to bring, to bring uh, salvation to all of mankind, the Day of Atonement held significance to Him. Very important aspect in this great plan. Because the Day of Atonement, remember, was a picture, a foreshadowing of what was to come in Jesus Christ. And so that, that sets the scene, it sets the pictures. And the sacrifice offered on the Day of Atonement was in preparation for Jesus' coming. And so God did not allow then those priests to eat of that sacrifice because of its importance. And God did not allow those who normally partook of that sacrificial meal to partake of this one. Therefore, therefore as it says, the hides, the flesh, and the old fowl are all taken outside and burned up. Now then, he gets to verse 12 and he says this. He says, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Through his own blood. Now you have to recognize to be outside of the city gate meant rejection. 
It meant rejection. And so these Jewish people, they fully understood that terminology. And you didn't want to be sent outside the city gates or outside the camp. And so the camp, of course, when Israel was marching around the desert for 40 years and God instructed them to build the tent of the meeting place, kind of the portable temple. And so whenever they set up camp, they would set up this, the temple. They would set up the tent, which had the Holy of Holies in it, and they put the Ark of the Covenant inside of that tent. And there's where the altar was. There's where they poured the blood on the altar. Of course, when they finally made it into the Promised Land, and they moved into the Promised Land and set up Jerusalem as their capital, finally, as their capital city, and that's where God ordained that the temple should be built. Then you kind of look at Jerusalem as kind of a permanent camping spot. And they set up the permanent temple. And so it was the permanent camp. And so when you see the interchange between, between the animal being taken out of the camp and Jesus being taken out of the city gate, it's speaking of the same context. The camp and the city gates are the same thing. And so to be outside of the city gate was really to be in no man's land. You didn't want to be there. Nobody really owned it. That's where the foreigners lived, outside the camp. That's where the people with leprosy went. They had to stay outside the city gate. That's where the people with contagious diseases and those who were sick, they were all outside the city gate. All of those who were unclean, outside the gates. And so outside the city gates represented this place that you did not want to be. In fact, in the old covenant system, when, you, when the Jewish people were to stone someone who broke the law, they would take them and, and execute them outside the gates. Of course, by the time Rome came around, they would also execute the criminals outside the city gates. In fact, the roads leading into the city of Jerusalem, they would line the main road with crosses where they would hang criminals so that people coming into the city or going out could see that this was what would happen to you if you became a criminal against Rome. And so the, the people who were executed were outside the city gates. And so you had this context. And in fact, the waste dump was out there as well. They filled the valley full of their waste, full of their rubbish. And it was said that there was a great stench that came from that valley and that the valley would often burn throughout the year because of the rubbish and the gases that built up there. And so I would picture that's where they took the animal carcasses to burn them as well. And so outside the city gates was not a good thing. And the, the author here is depicting for us the very serious nature of what it meant to go outside the city gates. To be placed out there would be to be disregarded altogether to be disgraced amongst your people. And so it was not a good thing. But what Jesus did then was made this place of rejection outside the city gate a place of acceptance. So you see this transition taking place because Jesus was also taken outside the city gates. Jesus carried his cross outside the city. We can all picture him carrying the cross and then Simon of Cyrene picking it up and carrying it out to the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary outside the city gates, up on a hillside. And that's where he died, outside those gates. And it's provided tr tremendous significance to these Jewish people. And so you see Jesus as this ultimate atoning lamb, the ultimate atoning sacrifice was sacrificed outside the city gates, up on that hill. And so the city gates and the camp, that came to represent everything that the old covenant system represented. And so when he says you have to, you, that Jesus was, was sacrificed outside the city gates. He's talking about the fact that if you're going to follow him outside the city gate, you're going to have to give up that, that old covenant system. 
You're going to have to go outside of that camp. And so the camp and the city gates represents everything that the old covenant system represented. And so under that old covenant, you wanted to be inside the camp. You wanted to be inside, inside the gates of the city. But Jesus says that he brought to completion the old covenant and ushered in a new covenant. And this new covenant was set up outside the city. And that has tremendous significance for us. So the roles are being reversed here. A place that was once known for rejection is now known for acceptance. And so there's really two meanings that you can pull out of this. First, the first meaning is this. All those who remain inside the camp, committed to that old, old covenant, committed to the sacrificial offerings, committed to the ceremonial food laws, they cannot partake of the atonement of, through Jesus Christ outside the, the camp. And therefore, the significance then is the death of Jesus came outside the city camp. Therefore, it means that anyone from any camp can obtain that atonement of sins. One commentator said this. He said, Jesus planted his cross in the world so all the world could have access to him. You see, rather than just the body of Jesus being taken outside the camp, what happened was Jesus is, the, is representative of the atoning sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and the actual sacrifice itself took place outside the camp as well. That's significant, because before that, the atoning sacrifice took side inside the camp, inside the Holy of Holies, inside the temple, for just for those people who were inside the camp. Now, Jesus goes outside the camp, dies on the cross, brings atonement not just for those inside the camp, but he brings atonement for everyone in the entire world who will come to him and accept the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You see the significance there? You see the power of that? And so now then, look at verse 13. He says, Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Let us then go outside the camp. You know, to that first century reader, when they came across this, this meant giving up that, that Levitical, Mosaic, sacrificial system. It meant giving up all that they had known to go outside the camp. And to go outside the camp mean, meant rejection. It meant that they could no longer lean on that old sacrificial system. They couldn't lean on the ceremonial food laws anymore. And so to go outside the camp meant that they had to acknowledge that Jesus ushered in a new covenant for them to live by. In fact, Hebrews 8, remember, it says that Jesus brought completion to that old covenant and he, he made it obsolete. He uses the word obsolete there. It's of no value now because now you follow the new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews wanted these Jewish people to know that they, they were still honoring God when they followed Jesus Christ. Because this nature of the Old Covenant was built into them so much that they actually started to feel guilty. They felt like they were, they were maybe not honoring God if they were going to follow Jesus. And the author of Hebrews wants to paint this picture for them. That it's actually okay that now the New Covenant is being set up for you outside the city gates, outside of that Old Covenant system. And so they knew that if they were going to follow Jesus, it was going to mean great sacrifice for them. They were going to have to bear. Uh, they were going to have to bear the disgrace that Jesus bore, and that's exactly what it meant for those Jewish people. When a Jewish person decided to follow Jesus, it meant that their family would disgrace them. 
that meant that they were disgraced in front of their family. It meant that their family would reject them, that it was just as good of them to be outside the camp because they would no longer be accepted inside the camp. It meant that they had to give up many times their property. They had to give up many times their family. Some of those first century Christians gave up their life to follow Jesus. And so to go outside the camp mean, meant that they were going to have to sacrifice all that they had known. They would have to give up their comforts of being inside the camp. They would have to go out to the place where the foreigners were. They were going to have to get to know those foreigners who all their life they were taught to hate and despise because they were not people of God. And now they're being told to go out there and not only to accept the, those foreigners, but to accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ. To draw them in. And you can see how, how, how much of a struggle this would have been for those Jewish Christians. But I sit here and I reflect on that, on that phrase in verse 13. Let us then go, go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. I reflected on that. I still reflect on it and wonder... You know, we have this context of those first century Christians and the commitment they had to make to follow Christ. But I wonder, though, what does that mean for us here today in New Zealand? What does going outside the camp mean for us? Each of us kind of have to answer that for ourselves. But following Jesus should not be comfortable, you see. Jesus knew that Setting up this new covenant outside the camp would mean that it would no longer be comfortable to follow God. You would have to sacrifice. You would have to give up something in order to follow Him. And you see, the question for each of us is what have we given up outside the camp in order to follow Jesus? Because it's going to mean that you're going to have to give up some of those comforts that you had because you didn't have to say the name of Jesus. It might mean that you have to give up relationships that you had in that life before you came to Christ because those people are just dragging you down. It might mean for you young people that you're caught up in relationships with, with others that you know, whether it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, just a friend, whoever it might be, you're caught up in those relationships and you know that they're, they're not leading you down a path that you should be going. And so to go and meet Jesus outside the camp for you is going to mean giving up that relationship that drags you down so that you can live more fully for Christ. For others, it might even mean that you have to move to a foreign country to do ministry. I don't know what God has presented you in your life, but I do know that it's going to mean giving up what's comfortable and walking in faith and standing by Jesus Christ at the cross outside the city gates. Because that's the context that the writer of Hebrews brings in for the Jewish readers at that time. And I think he brings that context into the 21st century as well. What does it mean for you to go outside the camp to follow him? Now I could continue making a list and try and hit each thing that maybe you guys are struggling with. But it's up to each individual Christian to, to determine for yourselves what it means to follow Jesus in your life. What is it that you need to give up because you know that it's taking you really away from Jesus in a different direction? You know, it's interesting, as, as he brought out those random thoughts, love one another, be hospitable to others, remember those in prison, 
honor the marriage covenant in a time in our culture and society that does not honor that covenant. Keep your lives free from the love of money in the midst of a culture and society that loves money more than people. You see what he's saying by going out to meet Jesus, by bearing the disgrace that he bore. Now look at this last phrase. He says, for here we do not have an enduring city. Now that we've gone outside the city gate, we no longer have the comfort of that city. Now we don't have a city to call home here on this earth. Nothing we have here on this earth lasts for eternity. This earth is not our home. The homes we're living in, they are not our homes. The money is not our comfort. It's not where we find our contentment. Anything else in our life, we cannot hold on to. One thing we can hold on to, and that is the faith that we have in Jesus Christ because we are looking for a city that is to come, that heavenly city that is to come. And so we do not hold on to the things of this world. In fact, we give the things of this world up in order to walk outside the city gates and follow Jesus Christ. That's the context of that passage. That's it. So I leave you with those thoughts. What does it mean for you to go outside the city gates to follow Jesus? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you humbly right now and we stand before you. And we're all asking ourselves right now, what does it mean to go outside the gate to follow you, Lord? For each person, it's going to mean something different, Lord, and you know our hearts. You know those things in our lives that keep, you from walking, keep us from walking with you. Lord, I pray that you will renew our faith in you, that you will give us the courage to step out in faith, to go outside those city walls of comfort in our culture today and to follow you more diligently, to live for you wherever we go, whatever we do. Lord, be with us now. Bring your blessing upon us. Give us your strength and your courage and your wisdom as we go out into the world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.